All right, let's do this. Jody Vance in for Jill Bennett on a very busy Thursday. Welcome to the show. Make note, as Aaron Newbells just mentioned, the much-anticipated in-person briefing from Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix is scheduled for 2 o'clock today. New modeling will be shared, and we will find out if current restrictions will be extended or even expanded as our numbers continue to surge here in BC in this third wave. Again, it's a 2 p.m. briefing. Thank goodness we all follow Richard Zussman on Twitter and are tuned in to Global News and watching his interviews on our online Facebook pages because we always uh, get kept up to date. It was your tweet, Richard, that alerted me to the fact that it would be a 2 p.m. briefing in person today for Dr. Henry and Adrian Dix. I got a lot I want to unpack with you. Thanks so much for doing this. Yeah, of course. And I like to update the times of the press conferences because I know there are so many that like to follow along and watch on the Global BC Facebook page and online, the briefings. And so, yes, with a little bit of a time change today, an hour earlier at two o'clock, uh, I think it's important to make sure people know uh, when they can tune in to find out, uh, as you mentioned, what's going to be very important information today. So I want to get into that, but let's first talk about the rumors that have been flying around. I'm still (laughs) getting new rumors today. This time uh, they're coming from the movie industry. Uh, It was yesterday afternoon. Let's start there where I think, was it me as well as Sophie Louie and a couple of others were inundating you and Keith with, what is this real? What is this? Because we were all getting these forwarded text messages and people, of course, checking with their sources in the media to see what's what. And we all come to you. Can you give us sort of an idea of just how viral these uh, text messages were yesterday? Yeah, so we have seen over the last two weeks a massive increase in the amount of false information that's getting circulated on Facebook and Twitter. And I'm hearing it a lot sort of through family group chats. Like at some point, these messages originate and I'm getting messages that, oh, my aunt sent me this or my uncle posted this on his Facebook page, and it's all about BC going into a lockdown, and in some cases, an imminent lockdown. And that is just simply right now, not the case. And yes, we could see further restrictions announced this afternoon from Dr. Bonnie Henry, but the guidance that we have heard from the province's top doc is that she believes the restrictions currently in place, once they are extended, will be enough if people follow them uh, along with vaccine to start bending things down. So there's no truth to this idea that we are shutting industries down. We are shutting businesses down. That is not what we are going to find out this afternoon. And yes, I don't want to, you know, breathe air on the fire that are these rumors, Jody, but it's at the point now where we're hearing from it from a lot of places. And I want to make sure that if you're getting one of these text messages or messages from a loved one, it's just... Not the case, but we will get further information around two o'clock in terms of the province's next steps. And that's the big piece of this, Richard. And what you just said there in terms of the the orders and the guidelines and restrictions that are in place currently from our provincial health officer, if followed, should have impact. The issue seems to be that these are not being followed because in that original text message that was, I'm hearing that, you know, things are going to be a stay at home and you can, you can only exercise outdoors sort of in your neighborhood and you can only go out of your house if it's essential, if you have to go to work or you have to go, you know, to get groceries or you have to, I'm like, well, we're kind of all supposed to be doing yeah. those things already. Like that these aren't um, already in front of mind 
you know, I think with this modeling and, and you tell me the modeling that we're going to see today is going to tell us we need to reduce our context significantly with these new variants of concern. Like that's the assumption here. The, the numbers are, are, are telling us that we've learned at least that much in the last 14 months. Yeah, my prediction from what we're going to see in the modeling is we always see that one graphic around if we increase our contacts, COVID spread will do this. And uh, we have no doubt increased our contacts and it will show exponential growth if we continue to do what we are doing in terms of our contacts. That's one thing I could basically guarantee will be in the modeling presentation. The other piece in all of this will be um, an examination of who is getting sick and who is getting severely ill and dying from COVID. And my best sense is that that age is going down because of vaccination, uh, but we will see how large an impact this trend of younger people getting sick is on the overall numbers. And the other thing I've been told to expect here is again, numbers about kid, younger kids, uh, the school settings, and the province will continue to reiterate the point that they believe the transmission is low within schools. And my guess is we will see some numbers around spring break that show that transmission among younger people went up when kids were not in a school setting. I know that drives a lot of people crazy. There are a lot of voices out there concerned about school settings. And yes, there should be things around schools that are concerning to people. Some classes, it's impossible to physical distance. Uh, some cases, there's no enforcement around the mask policies. But we're going to see some numbers around the difference between when kids were out of the classroom and inside the classroom. That's what I would sort of anticipate we'll see. And then the important thing about modeling, Jody, and you alluded to this, is that it's those numbers that affect government decision making. So they look at these numbers and where we're seeing transmission and who we're seeing transmission among and then make decisions around vaccine and restrictions and orders. And you and last point on this and you made the great point as well that you know many of these things we already have guidance around and the key piece is enforcement you know there's a lot of concern that the province just isn't doing a very good job at enforcing the actual rules and they've run into a situation where you know are we going to go into people's homes and knock down their doors and say you're not allowed to socially gather here that adrian dix made a really poignant comment to me last week about we don't live in a state like that we don't yeah. want to see the military walk along our streets saying, you must not go there. That's not how we live here. So we need to find a go-between where we have some enforcement and ticketing for policy breakers, while also individual responsibility to follow the guidelines that are being set forth. What about what the Premier said or alluded to earlier this week with regard to interprovincial travel? I mean, I can't even tell you how many buzz lines we got on that day. Just people wanting enforcement. Shut her down. Let's get to the ferry terminals to police the kiosks of people going to Tofino with their mountain bikes. It's like, oh, my goodness. Okay. All right. People are really upset, Richard. And, and Premier Horgan did a classic Premier Horgan thing, which yeah. was, you know, all things are on the table. BC has been clear. Enforcing a travel ban in this province is nearly impossible. And yes, it comes down to the scenario you talked about. And I, and I chatted with the new mayor um, of Tofino, Dan Law, last week on Focus BC about this idea of would they like to see RCMP sitting on that highway there before people get into Tofino and ask them why they're coming to the community. And the reality is uh, that's a lot of resources. And the belief is that that is not what is going to cut down on the spread of COVID-19. This is still being driven uh, in Metro Vancouver. 
Yes, when people travel from Metro Vancouver to other places, they bring with them the virus if they have COVID-19, and that is highly concerning. But the province has realized that actually locking people down and not allowing them to travel outside their communities is, in essence, impossible. And you'll yell at the radio and say, well, they did it in the Atlantic provinces. They shut that down. They created an Atlantic bubble. British Columbia has greater geographical challenges. It has greater challenges along the border with Alberta. Jason Kenney, the premier there, and, and Premier Horgan spoke uh, last week, or maybe it was earlier this week. You know, like everyone, dates are sort of a murky thing to me at this point, Jody. But they yeah, spoke recently same. about um, the idea of working together to, to tell residents not to travel back and forth. But the reality is there's not going to be people along that border telling them to turn away. I know people want that, and I'm sure the buzz line will light up again and say, Richard's an idiot, we want to crack down on travel. But I'm telling you, health officials here, politicians here, know that they believe it is impossible for them to actually properly enforce any travel bans, and so they are guiding people to not travel. Again, does it drive me crazy and others crazy when you see BC ferries increase sailings over long weekends? Yes. And maybe that's something they need to sort out before the May long weekend if we still have high transmission like we are now. But still, it's one of those things where those are not the priorities in terms of stopping the virus. Those are indoor social gatherings, which we know are happening in community every day and aren't intrinsically linked to travel. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. And as always, the phone lines light up when Richard Zussman is on to take your questions to 604-280-9898. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. And of course, Richard, your your super fan in Jim has emailed me to say, you know, <laughs> give him hell out there. You know, everybody be kind to Richard. He's just the messenger here. He's bringing us the clarity. And one thing just before we get to the calls, Richard, the uh, the news about uh, Vancouver School Board uh, vaccinations for teachers as well as first responders and and uh, police officers in Vancouver uh, getting their vaccines. Yeah, so we'll get more details on that today. But Vancouver Coastal Health uh, has a plan in place that over the next few weeks they're going to vaccinate uh, teachers in all school districts and the health authority as well as first responders like fire and police. It's a lot of people. So I'm curious about where that vaccine is coming from. It's the Moderna and Pfizer. So that will come out of the age-based program with the assumption I think the province is now making that we will get approval at some point soon from NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunizations, around using AstraZeneca for those uh, under the age of 55. And so I think it's going to be a coupling of those two things, but it's good news for teachers. I, I also hope we will hear details uh, in the briefing today at two o'clock about whether Fraser Health may follow suit and yeah. whether they are going to work with other school districts outside of Surrey. A lot of really hard hit school districts in Fraser Health. So I'm hoping for the sake of those school staff as well as first responders in Fraser Health that we may get some sort of similar information. I don't have any intel on that yet, but it would surprise me that Coastal Health would do this and Fraser Health would not, considering, again, where we have seen these COVID hotspots. Okay, I want to reiterate the fact that we will be carrying extended coverage of that live in-person press briefing at 2 o'clock today right here on CKNW. Let's get to the phones. You've been waiting patiently. We start with Marianne in Victoria. Your question for Richard Zussman. So I don't have a question. I just really have a comment that the rules are sufficient, I believe. If everybody did everything Bonnie Henry and, and the government has asked, don't, don't go out unless you have to, wear a mask, wash your hands, stay away from people that you, aren't part of your household, and limit your exterior, your outside contacts, the numbers would drop. I, I think people 
think that because there's so much vaccine out there, they think people are being vaccinated, that, you know, it's getting better and, okay, now I can relax a little. And I really think that that's what's happening. And, and I'd hate to see more restrictions. Uh, I, I hate seeing the restaurants shut down. It must be devastating. But I, I, I think the restrictions are there. We just need to follow them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said that, Richard. Thank you, Marianne. I said that to a friend of mine, uh, you know, doing the thing that we do. We walk, we walk distanced in the morning, then we go home, we stay home, we work from home. And I said to her, I'm like, I think she's what what do you think for the modeling? I said, I think it's going to say we need to reduce our contacts. And she looks at me and she's like, how are we going to do that? And I said, oh, no, no, not us. We are at like 10%. There are people that are that are so locked down and feeling it. And they're like, how can I do more? You don't have to do more. Keep doing what you're doing. All we can do is our best, right? That's got to be the message. And the one thing we could do is for people like Marianne, you know, tell your friends, you know, tell your community that this is how you are making your decisions in COVID. And yes, when we look at the switch, it's only about five to 10% of the population that has taken the foot off the gas. You know, there's still 60% of the population that is doing everything in their power to cut down the spread of COVID-19. There's about another 20% who have never been, as Adrian Dix describes, part of this fight. And then there's that other group, Jody, of 20% that sort of go in and out and say, oh, I'll do this one day and maybe my kids can have a sleepover the another day. You know, it's about communicating with our friends, our loved ones, our community. If we do this sooner, we will get out of this sooner. It's Every place in the world is struggling with this. Numbers are going up in Ontario. Numbers up are going up in Alberta. We are not alone here. So no, it's about not. working with our communities to do what we know is best to cut down on the spread. Casey in Coquitlam, welcome to the show. What's your question for Richard? Oh, hi there. Um, well, this is a, I don't really know if it's a question, but maybe you can make sense of it. A buddy of mine's mom is in the Dufferin Care Centre in Coquitlam, and all the residents there have all had their shots and they open it up so you can come and visit that now. But yesterday he found out that she's now tested positive for COVID, and so have about half a dozen others. And I thought, how is that possible if they've all had their shots? It's a good question. It's a great great question, Casey, and it is something, I don't want to spoil too much, but it is on my list of questions to ask at the briefing today uh, around how much we are seeing in the province in terms of people who have been vaccinated that are still testing positive. I know from firsthand experience, my uh, father-in-law is in a care home in the United States. He had uh, his vaccine and then subsequently tested positive for COVID. But the symptoms are far less than they are if not vaccinated. So that's a good sign. And we are still seeing people get COVID even though they've been vaccinated. Uh, But again, we're seeing less trips to ICU and fewer deaths. All of that is good news. We know that this vaccine is only one tool. It is not the panacea. It is not going to eradicate the virus, but it is going to help protect us against the most severe symptoms. So, Casey, hopefully I'll get those specific answers for you about how widespread this is. I've heard about what's going on in Dufferin. There are others where this is happening as well, where we're seeing vaccinated people still get sick. But in most cases, it is less severe. We are still seeing, tragically in some cases, people dying who have been vaccinated that um again if we can cut down on community spread overall we cut down on the risk of spread in care homes and spread to our most vulnerable even when they've been vaccinated 
You know, I wish we had more time. The phone boards are lit up. If you uh, have a comment to make, please go to our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. Richard, I know how busy your days are any day, but on a day like today, I especially am, uh, have gratitude for you giving us so much of your time. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, Jody, I'm always happy to do this. The CKNW listeners are so important to me, and, and there's so much that people need to digest here that I'm always happy to do this. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, and we want to turn our attention to the other health crisis in BC, the overdose crisis. And yesterday, you may have heard, we marked the fifth anniversary of the overdose crisis in our province being declared a public health emergency. Now, it's it's hard to even wrap our heads around this, but over those five years, 7,072 lives have been lost to drug overdoses. 7,072 people. Reaction from all levels of government feels as though it's been, well, moving at a snail's pace, trying to stem the death toll tide. So much of the discussion about what steps can be taken is what has happened in this quote-unquote acknowledgement of five years since the state of emergency was declared. So it's safe to, safe supply, decriminalization, ways to destigmatize self-medication, drug use, and addiction. So to discuss the steps that his government is taking, today we're joined by NDP health critic and MP from Vancouver Kingsway. Don Davies is with us on the line. Thank you for doing this. Nice to be with you, Jody. So there are many frustrated British Columbians for sure, and I'm certain there are frustrated people uh, within the government ranks at the snail's pace of the reaction to this overdose crisis. Tell us about the bill that uh, you're putting forward. Right. Well, you, you gave the sobering numbers in BC, Jody, but if you, if you extrapolate across Canada over the last five years, 20,000 people have lost their lives to the overdose epidemic. Uh, last year alone in BC, over 1,700 people died. That was the deadliest year on record in our province. And, and Canada, on a national basis, have recorded our highest quarterly death toll since we started keeping numbers in 2016. So um, if, if you look at the causes of this, uh, we think that it's decades of criminalization, uh, obviously a toxic street supply and a lack of timely access to treatment and recovery services have caused the catastrophe. So I just think it's time to treat substance use and addiction as the health issues that they truly are. And that's what my bill is about. And we heard Dr. Bonnie Henry, our provincial health officer, speak about that yesterday uh, in holding her press availability uh, and really talking through this crisis. And you can see the weight of this uh, other health issue, um, you know, air quotes with it, because the reaction to COVID-19, I mean, clearly the government purse loosens when it is urgent. We've watched this happen with COVID-19. Where's the urgency with regard to addiction? Where's the urgency with regard to the health and mental health struggles that are the underlying piece of the self-medication that, that leads to, to drug use, which leads to addiction, which leads to this domino effect that we do see people desperate to medicate themselves and then going to tainted street drugs. I mean, it's not hard to do the math on on the path here. So what what can be done first or what what do you what do you hope to have happen with the bill you're putting forward? Well, I, I think that in some ways, Jody, the population is far ahead of politicians on this issue because I think every family in this country has been touched by addiction. Everybody's got a, a mom or a dad or a sister or a brother or an uncle or aunt or cousin 
who has had a problem with alcohol or drugs. And I don't think we regard them as criminals. And the other thing I think is crystal clear is that no one in this country can seriously maintain that the war on drugs has been a success or that criminalizing drug use is doing anything whatsoever to discourage use or to help anyone recover. So I think the public is ready for this. Politicians have to follow by truly treating drug use and addiction as health issue. So my bill today, for instance, takes a comprehensive approach. And what I want to do at the federal level is decriminalize personal drug possession, ensure low barrier access to safe supply, provide for record expungements, and also expand access to harm reduction treatment and recovery services through our public health care system so that people can get the treatment they need when they need it, which is such a big problem now. That just sounds like a boatload of common sense. I don't know. Will it make it through the government? It's just all of that feels like it should have already taken place. Decriminalization, making it so the person who is self-medicating can do so without, you know, fear of being, uh, well, criminalized, arrested and, and then processed and having that record. And, and, you know, how do you ask for help when in doing so you admit to doing something illegal? Yeah, well, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, we, we wouldn't think that someone who is an alcoholic that we could, we could help them by tossing them in jail for a year. Yeah. Uh, same thing if you smoke cigarettes. I mean, no, nobody would say, well, if we punish you repeatedly, uh, yeah. that'll get you to stop. It just doesn't work. And I, I, th- I think we know that it's common sense. So part of me introducing this bill is, is to, to break that stigma, the political stigma, by saying, look, you know, uh, we've got to be courageous here. Let's put this on the table. I think the mass of the population is behind this issue. And yeah. to, to sort of indicate to the federal liberal government that they can take that bold next step. I give them credit for legalizing cannabis. I think that was a bold step. I think we've seen the results of that. Uh, it's, it's turned out to be a, a good thing that people accept. It's time to extend the same logic to other drugs. In fact, I think it's more important because these other drugs are killing people by the tens of thousands in this country. Um, why would we be leaving access to drugs to criminal gangs on the street when instead of providing a regulated supply through the healthcare system or some other system, it just doesn't make sense. And, and it's time we address this. And also when providing that safe supply within the system, you can also offer supports to maybe help people who are self-medicating and really do need some mental health or health supports that can be dovetailed together. It's just, it's trying to figure out which domino to put first. I mean, for a lot of people. And I remember when you bring up the decriminalization, then legalization, then recreational use for marijuana in the days, weeks, months, and even years leading up to that, People were talking about it. It was going to be the end of days. We're opening up the floodgates. It's going to be absolute pandemonium. None of that happened. None of that happened. Well, you're so right. And uh, on the first point, I'm so glad you mentioned that, Jody. that the more times you can get people intersecting with health professionals, the better. Uh, I don't want people intersecting with drug dealers on the downtown east side. I don't see any no. good that's coming out of that. But if they're intersecting with pharmacists or or, or doctors or other people in the treatment recovery world, that just in- increases, obviously, the chances of those people seeking help or treatment when they want it. And on the other point, you know, we've got decades of research now. This is not my opinion. This is a matter of basic uh, medical evidence now that... Um, when you decriminalize and when you destigmatize and when you um, really put the services in front of people that respond to what they need, we will see better results. Again, we've spent billions of dollars as a, as a world uh, trying to uh, punish and jail our way out of drug use. It doesn't work. 
And, and I think it's time to listen to the experts and, and have a sane, rational policy that actually will help people. All right, Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett, along with uh, NDP MP of Vancouver Kingsway, the health critic for the NDP, Don Davies, is with us. And Mr. Davies, uh, Don, you're putting forward a bill to decriminalize personal illicit drug use and opening up the phone lines now to our listener to chime in on this. We talked it through in the last segment. And and the goal really is to to find a way to not only save lives, but also help people who otherwise could fall down a very slippery slope, right? Yeah, it's, it's really about, um, I think, us as a society changing our approach to substance use and addiction from a criminal one and a moral one to a health-based approach. Right. Uh, so, and and that's, that's why I'm, I'm taking a, look, a hard look at all of the federal laws that actually need to be changed to reflect that more modern approach to, uh, to, to substance use. Well, let's get to the phone lines because they are lit up. And we start with Michael in Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, thanks, Jody. Hi, Don. You're my member of parliament. Um, I have a son who's living down there who's addicted to methamphetamine. And on a monthly basis, he's uh, he's racking up bills with the bone crushers down there. Um, I'd like to see a situation where we would be able to get away from criminalization but I think it's important that we also tie this to the four pillars, um, which hasn't been, I don't think up to this point, has, has really been all that effective. So we need people to really, people like you, Don, to really push for that. Thanks very much. I'll listen to you. Thank, Thanks. Thank you, Michael. You can hear the pain well, in his voice. So that is that is excruciating. It, it is. And, you know, we had uh, Leslie McBain from Mum Stop the Harm at our news conference this morning, and I, cause I think it's so important to have the family members and people with lived experience get in on this conversation. Look, Michael, I, I, my heart goes out to you, and I want to tell you I agree with you completely that um, we, we have to focus, and my bill does, on expanding access to harm reduction, to treatment and recovery services. Um, you know, we've got to build the health architecture that is needed to ensure that everybody can, can get help when they need it. And, and it comes down to a simple question. Like Michael's son, you know, do we really want him on the streets buying his drugs from who knows who knows who, yeah. uh, who doesn't care a jot about what's in the in the, the stuff they're selling them, or do we rather have that person say go into a pharmacy uh, or some other place where at least they know what they're getting in in proper uh, dosage? Uh, now, by the way, nobody is endorsing drug use. Nobody's saying it's a healthy practice. Certainly, nobody's talking about giving it to anybody for free. We're just talking about making the fundamental recognition that allowing criminal gangs to, to, to have a control over toxic street supply that's killing people is, is not a smart way to go. Let's go to Neil in Richmond. Welcome to the show, Neil. Um, good to hear both of you. Thank you. My idea is that uh, when a police officer uh, arrests a dealer, that that drug dealer, she or he, uh, obviously have to go to the police station and they're and they're and they're charged, and then they're automatically released. So they're basically released within two, three, four hours. My attitude, and they have to be uh, properly charged within forty-eight hours, two days. And uh, and my thinking is that they should change that from two days to four days. So ninety-six hours where that drug dealer um, is in jail until they're properly charged uh, or released. And therefore, the drug dealers are going to sit there and say, hold a second here, what's the point of going for 40, uh, for 
uh, four days and not doing any business. Then what they do is they move away. Okay, your thoughts on that, Don? Well, I think we share the same objective, which is uh, we, we want to put uh, street-level uh, criminal drug dealers out of business. Um, the, the real question is, is, you know, should we continue to use the criminal system to do that? My, my own view, with, with great respect, is that we've tried all sorts of uh, methods, and if we could arrest our way out of this problem, I think we would have fixed the problem decades ago. So that's why I think I, I'd rather put them out of business by by providing a, uh, a low-barrier uh, uh, safe supply through the regulated medical system or some other form so that uh, people don't have to go to the streets. They don't have to go to drug dealers. Uh, that's what will put them out of business in a permanent uh, way. And that's what I think we have to go to. Yeah, I think I'm seeing your logic there. And in, in, in listening to the idea of, you know, keep the drug dealer in jail longer and that that will be a deterrent for them, that still leaves somebody desperately seeking their next fix because that doesn't help the the mental health or physical health issues that led to, you know, self-medication that led to drug use, that led to illicit drug use, and then therefore addiction in most cases. Let's keep going to the phone lines because you're lined up. 604-280-9898 or star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. James in Vancouver, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate what you're saying, but what I don't understand is where are you going to find the people to do this? I have a kid. I haven't had a GP for four years because there's no one here. Where are you going to find the specialized people to to dedicate themselves to do this without taking them out of the general practitioner pool and making it even harder for people with families to find GPs in this city? There are a lot of frustrated people looking for uh, doctors, certainly in Metro Vancouver. I'm not sure, though, Don, if these two are connected. I don't think it's an and or. You know, mental health supports and addiction supports are very different from general practitioners, no? Yeah, I think you're right. And, and I, I share your caller's frustration. Um, you know, our health system really has a lot of gaps in it, and, and we yeah. need to properly resource it. Um, but I, I, I think that when we talk about creating recovery centers and treatment centers, a lot of that is outside the sort of primary care system. You know, there's there's a lot of different kinds of healing and treatment and recovery um, centers and approaches that uh, that can be, I think, ramped up. It doesn't necessarily include your family doc, although that can be a part of the process. But, you know, just because we don't have enough family doctors doesn't mean that we shouldn't be, I think, trying to build up Canada's um, treatment and recovery capacity because, you know, I, you know, my grandfather back in the 1960s, he was an alcoholic. Uh, he had to go to Alberta Hospital, which was a um, basically an insane asylum. That's that's where he went for treatment in the 1960s. And um, we, we, our thinking has evolved a lot since then. We have 12-step programs. We've got special healing lodges for Indigenous people. I think there's special programs for women. And in fact, it's it can be quite different if you're trying to kick an opioid habit versus an addiction to alcohol or cannabis. So we need to build a wide variety of treatment options for people. It's not going to happen overnight. Nobody's saying there's any quick fix or simple fix. But I think we've got to start with the recognition that what we're doing isn't working. And most importantly, families are losing people. They're losing their yeah. kids and their parents and their sisters and brothers. And I say it's time to stop that and, and, and recognize the evidence and try a different path. It's effortless to decriminalize. It doesn't take an army of people to decriminalize personal illicit drugs to just start there. Start by not putting the addicted individual in jail 
and give them a criminal record that stays with them for the rest of their life with their stigma attached to it. So Don Davies, thank you for opening up the conversation, uh, allowing us to, to have you available to our listener. Lots of people on the phone lines. If you want to chime in on our buzz lines, please do 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. We'll play your calls a little later on in the program because uh, we're up against the clock here. I really appreciate you being uh, so available and open to this discussion and so forthcoming with uh, with your stance and opinions. Good luck on, on the bill being put forward today. Thank you so much, Jody, and thanks to your listeners for their comments. Jody Vanson for Jill Bennett. And, you know, we're always trying to share uh, facts, truths, Uh, The details surrounding the ever-evolving pieces of the COVID-19 puzzle in Canada. Our experience here in British Columbia is very different from other provinces. We often speak to the British Columbian COVID-19 experience, our reality here during this pandemic. A really great resource is called covid19resources.ca. This is an initiative that was started back in March of 2020. And basically, it's like a virtual kitchen table. And there's discussion series that are applicable to various areas. And if if you want to log in, you can register and, and ask your questions and have a conversation. And there are discussions specific to BC that are coming up April 17th and the 20th at 8 p.m. Pacific time. So if you go to covid19resources.ca, really easy to navigate your way through. The registration button, boom, right in front of you. And where you can have those conversations without other people chirping in your ears. It's a medical and scientific community that are gathering together to help educate and help support the Canadian response to COVID-19. We truly are, whether we like it or not, in this together. And there are some people that just love to amp up the rhetoric and make it more uh, anxiety riddled than it already is. We're already feeling threadbare. You heard Richard Zussman earlier when he goes, I've lost track of what day it is. We're all talking about blur day. All we know is that we're sometime in the springtime because the cherry blossoms are out and we're getting towards that that final leg. Hopefully we can get there. And certainly vaccination is a big piece of the puzzle. No, it's not going to eradicate COVID-19 from the face of the planet, but it might give us some semblance of normalcy, some calm. Some A day will come where we won't be watching the daily case numbers to the degree that we are right now. And certainly I'm tapping my toe. I know 50 minutes from right now, 5-0 minutes, I will be tuned in right here while I'm working, but I will be listening to Dr. Bonnie Henry, uh, our provincial health officer and our health minister, Adrian Dix, giving us the latest COVID-19 case numbers, updating us on where we're at in this third wave, uh, making sure we know where we're headed. Will the restrictions be lifted that are in place by Monday? Uh, they're, they're due to be uh, ending on Monday. Uh, n- likely not is what we're hearing, but will there be added restrictions? There's a conversation about that. So at two o'clock today, we will carry that press briefing live for you right here on CKNW. So stay tuned for that. Right now, we're going to get specific about AstraZeneca. When Do you remember where you were when you heard that that pharmacies were going to be offering AstraZeneca vaccinations for people aged 55 to 64. Remember where you were? I remember where I was. I retweeted that as fast as I could. And then I got inundated with questions. Where, where, how, how? Oh, it's just in the lower mainland. Oh, And then the pharmacists were saying, ah, we didn't know. You know, it wasn't supposed to 
happen until the next morning. And yet all of the pharmacies around Metro Vancouver and beyond were being inundated with questions about it. People, it was like the amazing race for AstraZeneca there uh, right off the hop. But since then, the headlines around these rare reactions to the AstraZeneca vaccine have emerged. And for many, that is reason for vaccine hesitancy. So we thought, let's talk this through. Let's talk it through with a pharmacist based right here in BC. Very pleased to have Lindsay Dixon joining us on the line. Thank you for doing this. Thanks, Jody. Glad to be here. So take me through what it was like for you. What was your experience when the the news hit? The government said, we're, we're partnering up with pharmacists. We're going to be rolling out the vaccinations with AstraZeneca and pharmacies in BC. Yeah, so uh, it was it was exciting. Uh, it was also, you know, very, very last minute. And so it was something that, you know, pharmacists have been saying for a while now, we're here, we're ready, we know how to vaccinate and uh, we want to do this. So it was very exciting. But the turnaround time was, uh, was quite short. Now I am on Vancouver Island. So we actually were able to kind of watch this rollout in the lower mainland. And we thought we didn't start doing this until I guess just a few days ago. So we got about a week's notice to kind of see, see how this is going to roll out. But overall, um, other than the very short notice that we were given, and unfortunately, I think that that made it a, maybe a little bit complicated for some patients as well, just to kind of get all the information, which pharmacy was it and that kind of thing. Um, overall, now, I think that it's it's going fairly smoothly, but we're we're only about a weekend, so... <laughs> Well, there are a lot of people who were so excited and relieved to have the opportunity to just step up, roll up their sleeve and say, let's do this because the best vaccine is the first vaccine that is offered to you. And certainly there are enough safeguards in place uh, to know that if something is approved for use, you should feel confident in Canada to to take that. And yet some of the headlines and some of the hesitancy we've seen with, you know, Denmark just taking a pause on AstraZeneca, uh, that will get people going, well, uh, maybe I'll just wait my turn for one of the other brands. What do you say to somebody who's feeling that right now? Yeah, so at a pharmacy level, I don't think we have seen too much of that hesitancy at this point. Right now, we are seeing a lot of demand and we have limited supply. Uh, I expect that we may start to see more hesitancy. Uh, I think that it's really hard for people to analyze risk and we need to talk about risk versus benefit, especially with these new variants now. So with the AstraZeneca vaccine, the data that I saw today was that the risk of a blood clot is about one in one million, uh, sometimes as low as one in 300,000. Uh, so, you know, if you look at other risks, like the risk of a blood clot, say with a birth control pill, you're looking at 500 to 1,200 cases per million. Uh, someone who smokes, their their risk is about 1,700 cases per 1 million smokers. So we have to look at this uh, definitely uh, from, from, like I said, risk versus versus benefit. Now, we know also that the risk of a blood clot with COVID-19 is about 1 in 50 to 1 in 100. If you're hospitalized, it's about 1 in 20. So. Wow. When you put it into that kind of perspective, and now in BC, we're in quite a situation here. So we're seeing, like you said, these rising case numbers. We have variants of concern that are much more transmissible. Uh, in some cases, it's, there's some data showing they could be up to 60% uh, more deadly in some cases. So, you know, look at the situation that we're in. And I think that what people really need to do is they need to find places like COVID19resources.ca uh, consider participating in COVID discussions with these healthcare professionals and scientists from across Canada that will give you answers, 
credible answers, not answers that you're going to see on social media. Um, we'll give yeah. you factual, factual answers. Because I do think that it's very understandable that people have questions. And my, con- my only concern is where they're going to look for these answers. And if you find the right answers, you'll be able to, to make an informed decision. And then when you're at your pharmacy, you can provide what we call informed consent, right? So, yes. It, and, and being, you know, being of a certain age and, and having, I, I had my son right around the time where Jenny McCarthy was sitting on Oprah's couch and, and talking about mm-hmm. the MMR vaccine and, and, you know, the reports and this, and it does, does the MMR cause autism, which it does not, but mm-hmm. the conversation started and it just, it's like a game of telephone and it feels mm-hmm. like similar is happening. There are always going to be people who are anti vaccination. There just are mm-hmm. always going to be science deniers. We can, that's a topic for another segment in this in speaking with you, Lindsay, and wanting to speak with a pharmacist based right here in British Columbia, I think the important messaging uh, that I, I hope to share here is that if you do have vaccine hesitancy, speak to your pharmacist. I look to my pharmacist as such a resource, even pre-COVID, if there was mm-hmm. you know, something going around, if my son got a sore throat or he got a cough or whatever, I wouldn't go straight to the doctor. I'd go to the pharmacist and say, hey, anything going around? Because <laughs> the pharmacists usually know first. And I think that's part of the beauty of pharmacists being able to do this is that people are comfortable with their pharmacists. We are one of the most accessible healthcare professionals. Like you said, you can just go in and speak to them. And so people have a level of trust there. And, uh, and we have that because we are informed and we are not going to re- recommend something to our patient that we don't uh, believe is safe and we don't believe is beneficial to them. And that's something else we do after vaccination is, or before, even before vaccinations, we let you know what are the normal side effects. So what side effects right. could you expect? What side effects would not be normal and within what time frame? So when you leave, you are really leaving informed. And if there is anything outside of what we of what we tell you, you can either call us or you can seek uh, seek medical help. But I mean, it really is a very high quality of um, medical attention that you're getting from your local pharmacist. So I think it's great that we're that we're now involved in this. Thanks for being with us, Jody Vanson. For Jill Bennett, we are about 40 minutes away from bringing live to you the in-person press briefing and new modeling by our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and our health minister, Adrian Dix. We will carry that for you live at 2 o'clock, just to be aware of that. Continuing our conversation now with Lindsay Dixon, who is a pharmacist based in BC on Vancouver Island and making herself available to us to talk through vaccine hesitancy with regard to AstraZeneca in particular, but any hesitancy you might have about vaccines or just speaking on vaccines in general. And Lindsay, we really appreciate you taking some time for us. And certainly our listener is engaged. Our phone lines are full right now. Uh, Let's get to them. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 is a free call on your cell. We'll start with Maureen in Langley. Maureen, welcome to the show. Hi, just wanted to let you know, I got the AstraZeneca, and my husband did as well. I don't vaccinate. I've never had a flu shot, um, never had any any um, uh, vaccines, and I could not wait to get this one. Um, oh, the I have pharmacist, goosebumps. That's great. Oh, I was so excited. The pharmacist at Shoppers Drug Mart answered every question I could think of, did not rush me one minute, gave me, uh, sent me away with a sheet of possible side effects, um, we did have a few side effects, nothing major, 
uh, got the vaccine on a Thursday. Friday, I started to feel the side effects, looked at my sheet, saw everything was normal. And uh, by um, Saturday, I was perfectly back to normal. Way to go, Maureen, and to your husband. I love that. Lindsay, we love stories like this. And and certainly that would be the predominant tale, right? Yes. And if you could see patients leaving the pharmacy, how relieved they feel and just uh, how different it it (laughs) makes them. I mean, it's it's quite incredible to hear stories like this. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. Way to go, Maureen. I got an email from Paul that says, can you talk about the 55 to 65 group refusing the AstraZeneca being offered to them now and waiting for the Moderna or Pfizer instead that could go to someone in another age group? The advice is to take the first vaccine offered to you. Is that the message uh, that you agree with, Lindsay? Yes, that's definitely the message. And, um, you know, like I said, we're living in in a time right now where COVID is a reality in every single community. And so choosing not to take that vaccine is dramatically increasing your risk of a COVID-19 infection. And there's no no guarantee that you will have a mild infection, especially with the new variant. So so I would definitely say take the first vaccine that's offered to you, get it as soon as you can. And at least you have some protection, which is more than any of us who are not vaccinated have right now. And, and like Maureen said, I don't get vaccinated, but I got AstraZeneca. I think that might be my favorite call of this year so far. Anita in Delta, <laughs> welcome to the show. Hi there. I have a question about the AstraZeneca. Now, I've suffered from varicose veins all my life, and it's been really, really bad. Um, and I've never been able to take any birth control pills or anything because of the blood clots and whatnot. So would I be a bad con- candidate for AstraZeneca? Yeah, that, so that's an excellent question. And I think that you know, you could try uh, speaking with your healthcare provider about that since this is a specific case. But what I can tell you is that Thrombosis Canada did release a statement on April 2nd, and they are strongly recommending all adults, even those with a prior blood clot or blood clotting tendency, and people who are receiving blood thinners, um, as uh, they are still recommending the vaccine to these people. And that's straight from Thrombosis Canada. You can go to thrombosis.ca for that statement. So it's hard, it's hard to just tell you, uh, you know, from this standpoint, uh, but I do not see any contraindication with that specific uh, with that specific case. But you can, you know, I would definitely mention that to your pharmacist or your healthcare provider that's giving the vaccine. Just let them know. Thank you for the call, Anita. Let's go to Mark in Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Mark. What's your question for Lindsay Dixon? Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, the question is, um, I am in the 55 uh, to 65 age group. AstraZeneca. I haven't taken it yet, mainly because I was waiting for Johnson & Johnson because I don't like needles, but now it seems to be the same situation. But more than that is, I'm a grocery store owner, and I do not want to get vaccinated before all my frontline workers get vaccinated. Do you have any more information on the vaccination for them? Yeah, so, uh, and I think that most most people are aware, but I will share this again. Uh, so pharmacies were going to be vaccinating essential workers <clears throat> like your employees. And when the AstraZeneca issues with the blood clots came out, that changed. And now we are only able to vaccinate those who are 55 and over. So it is, I am hopeful that we will be able to vaccinate essential workers in the near future, but we're still restricted to that age category. Now, if we get the mRNA vaccines, maybe that will change. I'm not sure, and I, don't, I have not heard any, any plans of that. As for yourself, if you can get vaccinated, it does protect your workers as well, because we are seeing good evidence that a person who's vaccinated, their, the, uh, their likelihood 
of transmitting the virus is reduced in most cases. And so for yourself, I, I would not hesitate. I think that it would be a favor to your employees as well. Uh, you're eligible, you can get it. And, uh, and I would strongly recommend it. Absolutely invaluable information, Lindsay. This has just flown by. Thank you so much for doing this. Much appreciated. Not a problem. Take care, Jody. Jody Vance in for Jill this week. And as you heard Linda Steele just mention, the COVID-19 briefing is earlier today. It's at two o'clock. So 25 minutes from now, we will carry that live for you right here on CKNW. Dr. Henry, our provincial health officer, will be laying out new modeling numbers. You know, the graphs. Uh, this is what happens if we keep doing what we've been doing. This is what happens if we restrict a little bit. Will public health restrictions and orders stay in place, be extended, be increased. A lot of rumors flying around. Uh, What is undeniable is that BC yesterday reported uh, 1,168 new COVID-19 cases in a 24-hour period. That is a record number. We also have a record number in hospital. Uh, Lots to unpack in our BC experience. And we we connect now with someone who's been a touchstone. I feel like I've, I've become family with our next guest. Jason Kinderchuk, I'm constantly calling you uh, to uh, help educate our listener, uh, being that you are Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. I, I feel that you are uh, bringing to the table the, sort of that that layman's terms, consumable intel with very knowledgeable scientific facts at the root of it. And I always appreciate you spending some time with us. Thank you for doing this. Well, two, two things, Jody. I mean, one, I'm, I'm just a virologist and two, I'm a simple guy. So I, <laughs> I appreciate all that, but I, I'm not even the smartest Dr. Kinderchuk in my household. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll just go with that. <laughs> that is exceptional, but you consistently have been able to take very complex scenarios and put them into a perspective that I can consume. And I, it's so important that we understand what we're in because the rhetoric is hot right now. And the, the headlines are, are all over the place. And if you're watching national news and you're just taking in what's happening in Ontario and you live in BC, it's very different here, but it is a cautionary tale. And I think we should start there. Our Canadian COVID experience has unfolded over the last 14 plus months, Jason. And, and I'm wondering what you see what where you see we are right now and and where we might be headed on the short term yeah you know coming through december um you know there there was certainly i think a sense of optimism we were moving ahead um you know vaccines were rolling out i think we were seeing starting to see some of the real world benefits of the vaccination campaigns and there was certainly i think a a bright light kind of at at the end of the tunnel the variants have have changed that and you know i I remember the first reports from public health england about v117 and you know the just the rampant transmission they were seeing um, and, you know, I, I remember being concerned and thinking, this is not good. And then you started to see infectious disease experts across Canada, all talking the same language, talking about the variants of, of concern. And I think now where we are, it's, you know, you're watching that hurricane slowly come in in different areas of, of the country, knowing what's going to happen and wondering how we're going to, to get our way through. We will, but it's certainly going to take some ingenuity. So what will it take? Is it just simply we must, you know, be 
taking into consideration and taking to heart these restrictions that we've been hearing since really day one of this, the simplest of tasks to wash our hands, wear a mask when in public and in places where physical distancing is not possible, you know, stay in your household bubble, keep contacts as low as possible outside of essential and, and work from home whenever possible. Are these the things that are going to get us through when coupled with vaccination or, or have the variants changed the game that much? The variants, I mean, certainly those things are, are, are still paramount um, to to our uh, response to this. But I think, you know, certainly BC has seen with P1 just how quickly uh, all of this has unfolded and how quick the transmission is. Ontario, same thing with B117. So the variants have, have changed that process for us. And, and the I think the idea of how stringent we have to be in regards to infection prevention control. Now, from the vaccination aspect, that opens up, I think, a very, very big uh, area of uncertainty right now, which is what is the strategy? Is it still primarily focusing on high-risk groups first and then moving basically backwards by age? Or do we start to look at trying to get um, vaccines out to those groups that we're seeing overrepresented in, in hospitals across the country? And those conversations uh, certainly need to be had and, and I think are very much uh, being, being had in the background. So if you're listening right now and you've got a question for Jason Kindrachuk, here's your opportunity. In the next segment, we'll open up phone lines and, and get your calls and questions here. 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, or star 9898 is a free call on your cell. I'm just wondering, Jason, with with word that there is vaccine in freezers in Ontario and empty vaccination clinics where people are waiting for someone to come and get their vaccine. And here in BC, it's like amazing race to try and find a place where you can line up and get one and then people being turned away. Um, is it a supply problem across the country? Are we are we in a rumor mill of how the vaccine rollout is happening in Canada? Or is it literally we're getting it out as fast as we can in this country, but it's a supply issue? Oh, I, I think it's all of the above, depending on what region you're in, right? So I'm in Saskatchewan right now, and I think that they've used, as of last night, it was 92% of their stock, whereas uh, Manitoba, I think, was at 65%. Um, so is it a supply issue? Maybe in some circumstances. Is it a rollout issue as far as getting it out to people? Certainly in some circumstances. I just don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all right now across the country. And that, again, goes back to this idea of we need to be able to be flexible with with what the strategy is and be able to adapt, unfortunately, uh, at a moment's notice. It's a big piece of this puzzle. Now, so much vaccine hesitancy surrounding AstraZeneca and the headlines associated with that. We were all very hopeful about the Johnson & Johnson, the Janssen single-dose vaccine. Now there are some side effects associated with blood clots with that in the United States. Can you give us your scientific perspective on what we're seeing with these rare instances of blood clots? Yeah, I mean, my, my scientific perspective is uh, certainly th- these are things that, um, that that they are true adverse events. Certainly for, for AstraZeneca, the uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. I think the the causation is is still being established, but we're seeing that precautionary principle that okay, if if anything is recognized with all this post licensing um, uh, monitoring. Basically, all of the different healthcare networks across the globe are going, going to ensure that, that people are safe. So I think this really gives, uh, I think, a, a really kind of big testament to um, the scrutiny and the oversight that we're seeing over top of all of these vaccines, which I think certainly makes me feel more comfortable. Um, 
from the, the, the aspect of what we're actually seeing, okay, these, these are rare events. So yes, they, they occur. They certainly occur at a, at a lower frequency from what we see with blood clots related to COVID-19. At least some of the latest, latest data has suggested that. Um, but we also have to appreciate that, that they are uh, potential risk events. So you know, we, I think as a scientist, I look at this as being a moment in time where I and, and, and my colleagues have to be able to communicate what risk means and what, what our perception of risk is. Because my perception of risk is the, these are low-risk events as compared to what we're seeing with the disease. To the public, that may not be how they perceive it because I maybe look at this differently. And I think that's where we have to do a better, do- uh, better job in messaging. Jody Vance in for Jill this week, and we are talking all things COVID-19 as we are counting down. We're just 13 minutes away from the top of the hour when it is expected that uh, our provincial health officer, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and our health minister, Adrian Dix, will uh, deliver the most recent COVID-19 new case numbers, as well as lay out new modeling for us. Talk about Current restrictions, will they be extended? Will new restrictions and orders be added? We'll have all of that for you, as I said, at the top of the clock. As soon as it happens, we will bring it to you live here on CKNW. We'll continue our chat now on the subject of all things COVID-19 with a good friend of the program, Jason Kinderchuk, the Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. And Jason, phone lines are lit, so let's get to as many as we can here. We start with Leah in Lady Smith. Welcome to the show, Leah. Hi, Jody. I wanted to ask uh, Jason, my GP tells me I'm a vulnerable person based on my health issues and that I should have received a letter from the health authority inviting me for my vaccination. I haven't gotten that letter and she tells me that they've taken it out of the GP's hands and she can't, there's nothing she can do. What should I do? I'm going to hang up and listen. Uh, Yeah, good question. And I don't have any recommendation because of the fact that I don't do uh, any any work in British Columbia. I mean, outside of being able to reach out to to your public health authority, I don't know what the the next avenue is. Um, I don't know if there are any patient advocate groups that might be able to uh, to help with that, but uh, it's certainly unfortunately out of my wheelhouse. You know what, I, I'm glad that you did point out what most would say is like, start with reaching out to the your health authority, like the region you're in, and then take it up the ladder from there. Because certainly if your GP is telling you that you're vulnerable, uh, you can use that uh, in your conversation with authorities. Let's go to Lisa in Vancouver. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Hello. Um, some friends and I were looking online the other day um, regarding the protein vaccines, and um, one of the protein, in describing one of the protein vaccines, it said um, that the protein is encoded by the genetic sequence of the SARS-CoV-2 protein. And it, it caused a little bit of concern with people. You know, I guess anything to do with DNA tends to cause people concern. And um, so we're wondering, is this something new or is this what they've been doing, you know, with uh, the flu vaccines that we've been taking in the past? And uh Good question, yeah. Jason. Great question. So, you know, there, there are different technologies that are being used right now. The the mRNA technologies, which which provide basically a blueprint for being able to create uh, the, uh, the the spike protein from the virus. Um, that is, it's a newly licensed technology for for vaccines, but it certainly has been in development for for a long period of time, um, and and something that has been uh, you know been kind of circulating through infectious disease research for a long period. So, um, they they are new to the public, but 
certainly not new uh, in the background uh, within the research community. And really important, Jason, to point that out in terms of the what you were saying in the last segment, in case folks missed it, when we talk about some people feeling that things were rushed, feeling that, you know, these are these are just, oh, well, you know, let's try this vaccine. That is absolutely not the case with this science. No, 100%. I mean, it's, it's basically we've taken on everything we've learned about vaccines, which, frankly, the last 10 years has been uh, just, just an amazing amount of information, and, and use that to, to get us to where we are now, you know, 15 months into this pandemic. So certainly, um, we've, we've pushed technology forward, but we have still, you know, abided by the, uh, you know, the laws of, uh, of science that we've always used in the past to guide us. All right, let's keep going. The phone lines are full. 604-280-9898. Marshall in Surrey, you're up next. Welcome to the show. What's your question for Jason Kindrachuk? Well, this uh, COVID thing is a numbers game, but I, I don't hear the numbers very often of comparing the death rate in 2019 with no COVID to the death rate in 2020 with COVID. Can you do that for us? Thanks, Marshall. We'll send you back to your radio there. Jason, do you want to address this? Yeah, so I'd have to look back at the, the specific numbers, but we have seen certainly excess deaths uh, in response to, to COVID-19. I mean, there's always been the, the, the debate about, well, because of the restrictions and obviously the reductions in, uh, in even just flu transmission this year, um, how that has played into the, the numbers as well. So, I mean, we, we've certainly seen excess deaths, and uh, I think we've also been able to restrict, uh, you know, probably somewhere on the average of about 500,000 uh, deaths worldwide uh, in the past year because of influenza, which is what we tend to normally see. Yeah, really important piece of that puzzle is how hard we all have worked in Canada to keep the death rate as low as possible. You need only look to Brazil right now uh, to see what happens if you you ignore public health orders uh, to that degree. Let's try and uh, squeeze in a couple more calls here. 604-280-9898, star 9898. Lois in Maple Ridge, you're up next. Hi, I was wondering, I've heard that you have to have both doses of the vaccine to be effective against the new variants, that if you only have one dose, you're only covered by about 30%. Is that correct? Yeah. So we, when we look at this idea of, of one dose versus two doses, we certainly know that the first dose will, will give us a nice immune prime and, and we will get a certain amount of protection, but we're not going to get that full spectrum protection. And I think with the variants, the concern that we have is certainly B117. I think we've seen really good data coming out of the UK, even after a single dose, uh, even within high risk groups for, for both AstraZeneca and Pfizer. Um, but it's for B1351 and P1 where we don't have that same large population data because they hadn't frankly spread that far outside of uh, either South Africa or Brazil respectively. So we certainly want to ensure people get as full protection as they can. All right, Dave in White Rock, uh, your question for Jason Kindrachuk. Welcome to the show. Yeah, hey, Jason. Uh, Quick question on maybe some of the new therapies coming up. There was a uh, piece on the news the other day about a local company, Abcellera, that uh, does antibody stuff, uh, antibody therapies, and they're doing trials, and they're kind of pissed off that the government wasn't uh, wasn't using their therapies, which I think are proven. I'm not sure um, for treatment. So I just wanted to know your thoughts on like future antibody therapies as opposed to vaccines. Thanks. 
Yeah, you know, I think the antibody therapies are really interesting. Certainly, we saw a lot of this, um, you know, kind of being uh, worked through with uh, with the West African Ebola epidemic. Um, and I think there's a, a lot of potential for them. The issue that they always ran into with antibodies is a it's expensive. Um, to just from a, a manufacturing standpoint, but also it's the fact that you have to do it through an infusion therapy. So you can't necessarily just give somebody um, you know, a pill that they can take uh, at home on their own. It's, it's quite intrusive. So that's yeah. been one of the big limitations for them, unfortunately, but they, they do serve a good purpose in the clinic. Definitely on the radar. Jason Kinderchuk, always a pleasure to talk things through with you and you bring such wisdom to the table each and every time. Thank you for answering the call as you always do. Thanks, Jody, and keep well.